Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 17th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump's approval ratings are plunging. It turns out that the strategy of not offering a single thing to the majority of Americans who voted against you, paired with not being able to deliver much of anything to those who voted for you, not a great combination. And the Russia investigation hasn't helped. When the media reports factual details and raises actual questions, well, that goes a long way to solidifying in voters' minds, huh, there is something a little off with this Trump guy. But when the media engages in speculation or tries to gin up questions that are not yet justified by the facts, it seems, I don't know, not the best use of our time, right? Like this question raised on ABC's This Week was uh, held out in a lot of places as being a key piece in the Russia connection. So right about the time that Donald Trump Jr. took a meeting with the Russians, Trump made a promise. Here's Jonathan Carl setting it up on This Week. I want to get to one kind of mystery here, which is there's been a lot of attention to this speech that Donald Trump gave just before that meeting in Trump Tower, where he said this. I am going to give a major speech on probably Monday of next week, and we're going to be discussing all of the things that have taken place with the Clintons. I think you're going to find it very informative and very, very interesting. Okay, so Abby... That speech didn't happen the Monday of the following week, didn't happen the following week, the week after that, or the week after that. What happened? I have yet to find a Trump campaign aide who can explain to me what happened. Well, there was a Trump campaign aide sitting right next to Abby, and we'll hear from him in a second. Here's the real explanation. Trump's a total incompetent. What's more likely, a carefully planned, coordinated, well-crafted message was scuttled because the facts didn't fit Trump's theory of the case, right? Because that always happens. Or did he make a promise he didn't deliver on? Sometimes he does this. Lock her up. Mexico's going to pay for it. We won't touch Medicare. You'll love your health care. I know more than the generals. We're going to label China a currency manipulator. Just the ones that come off the top of my head. Trump has made so many promises that he didn't keep in his campaign, in his presidency. It's been so scattershot that I don't think you could prove anything by the fact that he promised to come up with a cogent argument and then did not do so. The amazing thing is that Michael Caputo was, at the time he was a Trump aide, and he was sitting right there. He worked on the Trump team, and he, he admitted exactly to what I just said. That would, no I'm going to tell you, that's not no. the only speech that he talked about that did <laughs> not happen. A lot of things that we had hoped to do never happened. You would have thought that digging on Hillary Clinton Listen, guys, we overpromised everything. How dare you hold us accountable for this one thing? I mean, think about it. Was it a 
Russian meeting that didn't go as well as hoped, that scuttled Trump's plans to have a star-studded convention, lots of showbiz, featuring a night of sports legends and icons. That's what he said. What we got was Scott Bayo. Was that the Russians' fault? Was it a meeting with the Kremlin-backed operative It didn't quite work out? Is that what canceled Trump's plans to unveil secret methods of defeating ISIS? Remember Trump's promises to release his taxes once the audit was done, and then he gets elected and said, yeah, we're not going to do that anyway. Was that because talks of Russian adoptions made him change his tune? Look, I'm not even listing all the dozens and dozens of broken promises he's made on policy. I'm just talking about times when he said that he would give us some information and then reneged because obviously he was just talking out of his ass the whole time. That's not the most dignified excuse, I will admit it. In fact, it's like the least dignified excuse. But it is an excuse that in this case works for Trump. I can see him and his surrogates eventually embracing this. Look, I might be a lot of things, a liar, a bullshit artist, fairly incompetent, but I did not collude with the Russians. The only problem with that is even that assertion could be a lie. On the show today, I spiel about, you know how the movie One Million Years B.C. You had the Stegosaurus against the T-Rex? We have some footage of that. You didn't know who to root for, right? Well, the same thing happened to our society over the weekend. It was Ann Coulter versus the airlines, which I think was part of an overall March Madness type bracket, the final four of odiousness. But first, our old friend Dan Pashman of The Sporkful stops by to talk a little gastrophysics. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. You know, we think of taste as something that happens on our tongues and in our noses. But Charles's work has shown that taste is actually something that happens in our brains. And when your brain decides how something tastes, yeah, it's getting input from your tongue and your nose. But it's also influenced by genetics, marketing, and so much more. The shape of the glass matters, the weight of the glass matters, the weight of the cutlery in your hand matters. Uh, it changes how tasty the food is. It all gets blended together in a way that's kind of impossible for you to pull it apart. Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful Podcast, has just put together another great episode. And this one is about taste, but how taste has nothing to do, or the parts of taste that have nothing to do with your tongue and your sense of smell. Hello, Dan. How are you? Hey, Mike. So you went through, there was this one, there was one guy. I mean, there's a lot of guys, but there's one guy <laughs> who you talk to who is what the leading researcher on how the shape and feel and other senses uh, affect our sense of taste. Yeah. His name is Charles Spence. He's a psychologist at Oxford in the UK. And he's sort of one of the leading voices in this emerging field in food science called gastrophysics, mm -hmm. which is about all these different 
factors that influence your perception of taste. Like we think of the, of taste as this one thing, this singular experience. But well, if we're really complex, you know, four centers of the tongue, there are four tastes, but it's all based on the tongue, right? Yeah. In our minds, yeah. but, but really, there are there's so much input coming into your brain, and so many things that affect taste. So he has done a ton of research on this because restaurants are keen to learn about it. There's opportunities for nutrition and and changing the way that we we eat to be more healthy. And there's a lot of opportunities to make more money. Food brands and restaurants see big cash opportunities with this research. So let's go through a couple of them to make them tangible. Uh, the weight of cutlery. Yes, the weight of cutlery. And, and in general, touch. We don't think of touch as being something that informs our sense of taste. But everything you're feeling with your hands when you're eating, that is feeding back into your brain. So when the forks and knives are heavier, we tend to uh, think the food is better and be willing to pay more for it. There's an assumption that heavier cutlery must be more expensive and it feels more substantial. The same right. thing goes with like we like heavier coffee mugs, heavier glasses that make it as if our brain has a hard time distinguishing the food from the vessel. I always found that true. Like when I was enjoying a really good, fine IPA, when it was out of a 12 beer funnel, it just didn't taste as good, <laughs> I found. How did you like it out of one of those construction helmets with the two uh, two with cans the and the straws? Yeah, yeah, you know, beer through a straw. I'm still working on that one. They give that to you in Penn Station. Yeah. They give you a giant beer with a straw. Yeah. I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> um, is there uh, an evolutionary reason why this may be true? Well, shapes yep. in general are, are a big thing. Like, for instance, in this episode of The Sporkful, I also do an experiment out on the street with my daughter. We serve ice cream off the same kind of ice cream off two different plates. One is round white plate. One is a square black plate. And our half-assed research, along with Charles Spence's legitimate research, found that people perceive the ice cream to be sweeter when it's on a round white plate than a square black plate. And it's because we tend to associate brighter colors with sweetness and rounder, smoother edges with sweetness. Yeah. Sharp, angular edges we associate with bitterness and acidity. Yeah. And he also surmised in the episode, maybe we just have eaten more ice cream off of round plates or bowls. And so either we're used to it or it reminds us of ice cream more. It seems the way to eat ice cream. You know, this is still a pretty early, early going in this research. So it could be just that you form an association over time and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It could be, though, something evolutionary where uh, perhaps it is that we associate sharp objects we have this association that sharp objects mean danger mm -hmm. and so when we see sharp edges we associate that with sharp flavors bitterness and acidity versus smooth round soft plush yeah he also points out that if you were to sort of even the good humor ice cream man i mean that guy is not dressed as a goth he's wearing white <laughs> that's right yeah. right a lot of bright colors yeah you ever walk think in of his lapels they're all rounded not that's sharp, right sharp angular yeah. <laughs> and the ice cream tastes sweeter it does if you have stood for anything in the history of the Sporkful, it's making each bite more delicious and you strategize bites. And so this can be summed up in, you know, your one great, what was it called? The proximity? The proximity effect. The yes. proximity effect is uh, it applies to many things, but expressed in its purest state, it's this. If you want to enjoy a cheeseburger more, put the cheese on the bottom. That's right. Below the cheeseburger, brings the cheese closer to your tongue, accentuates cheesy goodness, and creates a seal <laughs> to seal in burger juices and prevent your bottom bun from turning soggy. Um, He added something to this. He gave you approval, and he fleshed it out in a way that I hadn't thought of, the proximity effect. Why, in fact, burgers might be traditionally made with the cheese on top. 
Or pictured with the cheese on top. Right. Well, this is one of his points is that oftentimes foods are presented to us in the way that they look most appealing. And that cheese, when it's on the bottom, I'll be honest, because I make my cheeseburgers with cheese in the bottom at home, they don't look as beautiful. Mm. The cheese, you don't get those corners uh, gently resting down. They tend to sort of flop onto the bun. Um it's just not as pretty. And this is true also with salads. It's something I talk about, the proximity effect. When you have a bed of greens on the bottom and then you have your sort of featured star components on top, it looks very pretty. But when you thrust a fork down into that salad, you end up with the greens on the tip of the fork. Right. And then that's what lands on your tongue first. That's the flavor that's accentuated. And the star ingredients on top get hidden. Right. And so oftentimes we are choosing visual uh, appeal over the uh, optimal taste experience. Same thing happens with so many uh, uh, chocolate-covered anything. Yeah. You have chocolate-covered anything. The chocolate's on the top, and now it's not going to land on your tongue. And the reason it's on the top is that's what looks the best on the package, or that's what looks the best in presentation. So what I do, by the way, with the salad is I I put it the normal way that everyone has. I stab it. I just flip the fork and eat it from the long end first. (laughs) So I wound up gagging a lot. Yeah. The taste is delicious. (laughs) So by the way, when you get a cheeseburger in a restaurant, do you tell them cook it on the cheese in the bottom or do you flip it when you get it? I, I, I flip it when I get it. Yeah. yeah. But it's still not as good as making it that way because there's the time in the back when it's been soaking in. And That's so right. Forth. Well, sometimes the, sometimes I'll just, if it's already been composed, I'll just eat it upside down. Mm-hmm. So that's the easiest. The burger or you? <laughs> Me. Yeah. Why, why would I eat the burger upside down? That's do weird. Do you have a preference for the bottom bun versus top bun? When you make a burger upside down and you put the cheese on the bottom, the cheese rests on the bottom of the hamburger bun. Yeah, the way, the way that I do it at home is like, you know, picture a grill of yeah. burgers. The cheese is on top of all the burgers. I then take the bottom buns yeah. and place them on top of the cheese on the grill. Yeah. Then spatula under, yeah. flip and place it down on the plate and then top buns on top. What about garnishes like lettuce and uh, onions and stuff? I don't usually bother with those at, at home. It's yeah. like a lot of work and I feel like it's unnecessary when you have a great burger. I will do it like a, a Shake Shack style sauce mm-hmm. with the burger. Also, as far as uh, having the best flavor hit your tongue for a sushi, and he said, is this true in Japan they flip the sushi? Yes. So I the, didn't know the that. fish lands on their tongue. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's rare, but I was recently invited to a fancy schmancy food event, this French thing, and they had caviar, three kinds of caviar, and they were serving it in little, almost like shot glasses made out of potato. And they would hand you this boiled potato shot glass filled with caviar, and you would eat the whole thing. And I was flipping it and laying it on my tongue. So that I could yeah, take, I mean, it's caviar. I came here. I don't need. A, I didn't need to come here for a boiled potato. <laughs> Most common food on earth. Right. <laughs> Biggest right. delicacy. Right. Yeah. It's like when Homer Simpson uh, goes into that restaurant and he's. Uh, I think he's like won the lottery. He's got all this money to burn. He's like, I'll have your finest food stuffed with your second finest food. <laughs> and they say, Very well, sir. Lobster stuffed with tacos. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And I was flipping it upside down, but I was a little self-conscious in this fancy schmancy event that perhaps like this isn't the proper way to eat the caviar. But then I was like, screw these people. Yeah. Yeah. And then you were bounced and you were <laughs> yeah. made to eat burgers with cheese on the bottom. Right. So uh, you, you mentioned why restaurants might want to go in for the heavier cutlery, why someone plating a uh, some ice cream might want to go in for the round white uh, plate. But then marketing's really interesting, like left-handedness and right-handedness. That comes into effect in marketing. Yeah, I thought this was so interesting. So um, picture a can of soup. On the front of the package, you see a bowl of soup a picture of it. And then there's a spoon. Now, as you face the image, as you look at the can, 
If you're right-handed, you will prefer to see the spoon on the right side of the bowl. That's how you would eat the soup. With the spoon pointing towards you. And this yeah. is some deep evolutionary stuff because our brains are wired whenever we see food to very quickly calculate how much energy we can get from that food and how easy it will be for us to eat it. Yeah. Uh, how much work will be involved. And when we see that the spoon is on the right side with the handle pointed towards us, it looks more inviting. Our brain calculates it will be easier to pick that spoon up and we're more likely to buy it, which is why Charles suspects through his research uh, that left-handed people are prone to buying less soup. But in the future, it's going to change, Mike, because we're going to buy more and more of our soup online or through our phones. And then your phone will know that you're left-handed and it will flip the image. So that lefties will see the spoon on the left and righties will see the spoon on the right. And finally, we will have soup justice. Wow. A f a f a f an app for soup, a sort of <laughs> Studora uh, effect. <laughs> or I was thinking that, um, let's say you had kind of a mediocre soup company. You know, you went into the soup game and it just wasn't working. Your last last gasp effort could be like, all right, we're putting the spoon on the left. We might not be able to get most of the market, but we're going to appeal to the lefties. We're going hard for the left. Right, right. I thought you were going to say put a spoon on both sides. Oh. Then you could eat like with two hands at once. You could eat the soup faster. <laughs> I, I take us back to my idea of the beer funnel, but with soup. <laughs> now that's some, you think, you think those frat boys are hardcore drinking beer. I'd like to see a nice mulligan stew going down. <laughs> the boys at Alpha Chi. Dan, what else have you been working on lately with the Sporkful? Uh, we just did an episode where I interviewed Roald Dahl's daughter, and we did a whole exploration of how Roald Dahl used food in parenting, uh, as well as in his uh, in his works. And she told some amazing stories about growing up with him as a father. He would like wake them up in the middle of the night and like take them into the woods to look for badgers and then feed them chocolate. Yeah, he, uh, he, he invented Wonka bars and, yes. and Gobstoppers. And he was as eccentric as you might imagine. There's some great stories in that episode. Awesome. Dan Pashman is the host of the podcast, The Sporkful. Check it out. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. This weekend, two of society's great malefactors, Delta Airlines and Ann Coulter, got into it on Twitter in an effort to determine which is the more loathsome institution. Here's a hint. Ann Coulter never gave me a free set of headphones to watch Paul Blart Mall Cop on select domestic flights. Coulter was moved from her pre-purchased God-given seat, which she had researched and paid an extra $30 for, for the legroom. And in her place, a woman was seated. The woman was described by Ann Coulter as dachshund-legged. As an adjectival description, dachshund-legged ain't bad. But Ann Coulter is. She tweeted a photo of her sausage-limbed usurper, who was only a private citizen, who never asked for any of this, who only wanted to get a seat on a plane. And since we established it was a Delta plane, this poor woman, in a way, already was a victim. So Coulter threw a fit, no doubt thinking that America hates the airline so much she would generate sympathy. What she didn't count on was the possibility that America hates Ann Coulter more. This is what social scientists call a natural experiment. Perhaps you've seen March Madness-style brackets trying to pit the worst things in America against each other. Well, we have an actual experiment in real life. Ann Coulter listed as a four seed. The airlines listed as a five seed. But we wouldn't know who would really win until the event really happened. And that's what happened. So Coulter screeched, 
Delta hit back. Coulter jabbed. Delta took umbrage. We're disappointed that the customer has chosen to publicly attack our employees and other customers by posting derogatory and slanderous comments and photos on social media. The company further described Coulter's behavior as unnecessary and unacceptable. Coulter claimed vindication and did so by linking to an article in the Reverend Sung Young Moon's owned Washington Times. I will read from some of this article. Americans are sick and tired of being treated like chattel by airlines. Seats are smaller. Legroom is far less ample. Fees come fast and furious. Lines are outrageously long. Customer service is about zero or less. And complaints, no matter how valid, are handled with the most dismissive of attitudes and seem to sneer, yeah, we switched your seat. We lost your baggage. But what are you going to do about it? If airlines were Democrats, the passengers would be black voters. Wow. So... In this analogy, would Republicans be Amtrak? No, that's government funded. Maybe Republicans would be like just walking to Disney World. Personal responsibility at stake there. And if airlines were Democrats and the passengers were black voters, then it would be true, as with the Democratic Party, that passengers would make up 21% of the airlines. So wouldn't that lead to better legroom? Anyway, crazy analogy. It was the best pro and Coulter argument I came across. And the method I came across it was that Ann Coulter tweeted a link from another Twitter feed, and that Twitter feed is called Antensity. I will read you the description of that Twitter feed. Ann Coulter is jaw-dropping gorgeous. Face the facts and join us. This is a fan page. Yes, we are occasionally retweeted by Ann Coulter. Hashtag deplorable Antensity. Coulter has since been on the Joyce Kaufman Show for an hour talking about the injustice visited upon her. And also in their little social justice warrior response here, um, no, they haven't given one answer on this. They've given a whole series of answers, but their main answer is to abuse me, um, continue to abuse me. You know, that is a unique and crystal clear argument, sort of like a snowflake. Of course, there were some fair-minded nonpartisans who took Ann Coulter's side. Sam Fisher just a guy on Twitter named Sam Fisher, but he raised an interesting point. He said, I dislike Ann Coulter as much as anyone. All right, so now he's in my good graces. We have common ground. And then he said, but in reference to the Twitter response, he said, but this is the most ridiculous, baby-ish, Trump-esque response. Think about this. What he does is he gives you another target and another frame to consider the target. Maybe Delta is wrong. Let's put aside the Ann Coulter question. Let's think about Delta. Remember, Delta, the airlines, they were a four seed in the March Madness of odiousness. Was Delta behaving like Trump? Trump, obviously a number one seed in our brackets. Delta tweeted, we're disappointed that the customer has chosen to publicly attack our employees and other customers. You know, that is actually a little like when Trump acts all apocalyptic over a minor incident or blows up a smallish fact into something major. Like when he tweeted, wow, CNN had to retract big story on, quote, Russia with three employees forced to resign. What about all the other phony stories they do? Fake news. So they caught fake news CNN cold. But what about NBC, CBS, and ABC? What about the failing New York Times and Washington Post? They're all fake news. Huh. That is something to think about. I mean, Coulter was on the rope. She was about to advance over the airlines in our tournament of repugnance. But Delta really did do some Trump-esque tweeting. Maybe the question is, how does a right-wing provocateur like Ann Coulter respond? 
When they're attacked, they can release about a liter of slime, which clogs the mouths and gills of their assailants, making them unable to breathe. Well, that was actually a description of slime eels or hagfish. Maybe you heard about them when a truck overturned in Oregon. Slime the highway, slime the cars, slime the environment. I only mention the slime eels because they are a surprise number 15 seed that has advanced in our tournament of detestability and will face in the next round. And Coulter, she beat the airlines. Tune in to see who makes it to the final four. And if anyone can unseat Trump, reverse mortgages, pop-up ads, antibiotic-resistant gonorrhea, and every last employee of the restaurant featured on Vanderpump Rules. It's a tough field of the detestable, but if anyone's up to the challenge, it's you, Ann Coulter. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Brube has a sloth-like digestive tract. Just producer Mary Wilson has platypus-like venom, which means not secreted from glands nor lethal to humans. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a spiny anteater-like elongated and slender snout, functioning both as a mouth and a nose. The gist, we have an egret-like confidence, believing we possess milky white plumes developed during the breeding season, and that is coupled with an eaglet-like reality. Peru, Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs> 